All right, he's going to hate this, but I'm going to do it. How y'all feel about Kit Case in the suit back there, by the way? Yeah? Look at that. I know, it's good. You, uh, you don't look homeless anymore, which is good. It's encouraging. I'm just kidding, I love you. We'll, uh, we'll cut that. We'll cut that part out of the podcast. It's good. This is, uh, this is part eight of Kings and Kingdoms, and uh, we're going to do a lot today. We're going to do a whole lot today. It's going to be good. I'll, I want to start with this story. I haven't been up here in a couple weeks So I want to start with this. It's not a surprising story because a lot of my stories happen at this place, my my home at the YMCA bench press. Okay, and so I was I was on the bench press, and on Fridays that's our off day as a youth staff, and so I really try to protect that day, and I have my routine. I try to rest well, and so part of my routine is I go to the YMCA in the morning when no one's really there. And I just, I've like put in the AirPods, which I got new AirPods yesterday, by the way, because mine, mine broke. And uh, they like tell you, they're like, ah, it's just 149. It starts at 149. I'm like, it was 233 when I was done with everything. So I don't, I don't know how they do that. But I was at the bench press and I like to blare the real country music when I'm, when it's like Friday at the bench press. And I emphasize the real country music, if you know what I'm saying. Like, not, not like some of the new stuff. Um, Luke Bryan, not country music, Jason Aldean, not country music, not that stuff. We're talking like the the real country music. So if you want to go through things later, if you want to talk about is this real, is it not, I'll gladly tell you, you can come up here afterwards. So I'm there. I'm probably listening to Pat Green at this point as my guest. So I'm listening to him and I'm in the zone. And I, and I say this humbly, but I'm lifting a profound amount of weight. I'm on the last set. Okay. We all know how that goes. All right. And so this, this little, this kid, I hear this voice, like right when I'm getting in the zone, it's like the chorus of Carry On by Pat Green probably. And then he, he just says, kind of high pitched, no offense to him. He's like, how many more sets do you have? And I was just like, okay, first of all, shouldn't be here. Like this should be, this should be against the rules. But second of all, it's like a school day. It's like a Friday. And so I don't know why he's here. Like y'all were in school, have no idea what's happening. And so he's, he asked me that question, which is basically his way of saying, hurry up, I want to get on the bench press. And I didn't take too kindly to that. But in the moment, I'm like, I'm a minister, so I need to treat him with grace and love. And so I'm like, I just have one more. And then I ask him, and in my head, I'm joking, but I, I just wanted to see what happened. I said, do you just want me to leave the weight on for you after? Or do you want me to like take it off? And he's like, just leave it on. And I, in my head, I'm like, Really? Like, I'm going to see this happen. And so I finished my set. It was a good one. And then I I walk off. And as I'm walking off, I'm like, you know what? I've got to watch the young lad try to do this. And so I turn around just to watch this happen. And he, like, he kind of pushes it up. And it was one of those things where it happened in slow motion. And I've never seen a bar hit a a man that, that fast. I mean, just dropped it. And so I know what you're thinking. You're like, Will's a humble kind minister. He's going to go rescue him. No, I'm not going to go rescue him because he needs to learn something in this moment. And so I, I'm watching. I just want to see how this is going to play out. And one of his friends who I guess is also skipping school runs up and he kind of like, he can't even lift it from that side, but they, they figure it out. He does the thing where you like slide under it. And I was like, man, that'd be a, That's a good lesson for him. So he takes a little bit of the weight off, but not a lot. And he tries it again. And the same thing happens. And I'm just sitting there like, this is unbelievable. And they keep going. And then this is interesting. He's like, apparently he's like, if I just go to another bench press, maybe it'll be easier. So they switch bench presses 
They do the same amount of weight. The same thing happens. Like I see this play out for 10 minutes and I'm sitting there and I'm enjoying it. I'm not going to lie to you. At this point, Brooks and Dunn's probably on and I'm watching and I'm enjoying the soundtrack, my Maria watching things fall. And, but it hit me. And some of you have heard this story is I was like, oh my gosh, I did the exact same thing when I was in high school. And some of you remember this. It's probably one of my most well-known stories is I was on the, the uh, Highland Park powerlifting team freshman year. And now they make you do powerlifting and track, right? For me, they, they gave you the option. And track was after school, and I wanted to go home after school. I wasn't very committed. Y'all remember Luke, the guy from Mena Nehemiah that spoke? And he, like, said publicly that I, he used to skip practice with me. It's like, thanks, Luke. That was awesome. But that was me. And so I did powerlifting. I'm in the lowest weight class, okay? And I'm, there's three people in the weight class. I'm guaranteed to finish top three. I'm guaranteed to win a medal at a powerlifting meet, which is incredible. And I'm actually looking at the guys. I'm like, I think I can win. And I get a little cocky. I stack the bar. And same thing happens to me. It falls down, except it's not at the Y. It's publicly at this meet. And everyone's looking at me. And you get three tries, but you can't change the weight. And so I had to just, in a humiliating fashion, let it fall on me three straight times. And I got disqualified from the meet. And so I was guaranteed top three if I did nothing. Like all I had to do was just lift the bar. And I ended up getting DQ'd because I, I couldn't do it. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my gosh, I did what he did. And so I tell you this because it's so true in so many areas of life that we regularly overestimate our own abilities. Like I'm watching him do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I literally did the same thing. And we all do this in different areas of life. I've done this with school. I remember freshman year at Highland Park, I was like, I can handle all the pre-APs. Like I can do like six pre-APs and it was horrible. I never should have done that. Um, I've done it definitely like the weightlifting story. I mean, you can go through so many examples. I don't know if you've ever done this where you've just over, overestimated your own abilities. And um, we do this all the time. It's human nature to do this, but it happens in the spiritual life also. And so one of our biggest struggles where we live, specifically in Dallas, is that we can be deceived into living like we don't need God. We overestimate our own abilities. We're like, we've got money, we've got opportunities, we are pretty good, we look pretty good, we're pretty successful, and when we compare ourselves to other people, we're like, I'm a pretty good person. And then when we have a problem, typically our mindset is, I can handle it. Like, I can figure it out, I can come up with the wisdom and the strength to solve this problem. And so we treat God like I would call him like the Home Depot God. Okay, do you know the Home Depot mantra? It's you can do it, we can help. That's how we see God. We're like, we can do it, maybe he can help a little bit. So we call him when we need a little bit of help, maybe, but in the end, like we think we can do it. And so this is what God does. This is because we regularly overestimate our own abilities. What God lovingly does in our lives to grow us is he shows us over time our own hearts and our own desperation he shows us how weak we really are so that we would actually be blown away more and more by who Jesus is. Okay, there's a guy named John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. Maybe you've heard of it. And this is what he says about this. I'm reading a book right now, and it's just a collection of letters that he wrote people that had questions about Christianity and stuff like that. And so this is what John Newton says about it. I think I have it up here. He says, hey, this is what it really means to grow as a Christian. Like, you want to grow as a Christian, we have some misconceptions about what it means. He says, this is actually what it means. It means over time, you actually have lower thoughts of yourself and higher thoughts of Jesus. So every day will show you more of your own heart and of the power, sufficiency, compassion, and grace of our adorable Redeemer. 
And so we think that the Christian life, we have this misconception, we think that it's about getting stronger and stronger and better and better, but actually it's about getting more acquainted with our weaknesses and therefore rejoicing more and more in Jesus' strength for us. And so this completely changes how we read the Bible. Like a lot of us, we go to the Bible like it's this divine self-help manual that exists to help us live our best life now and solve all of our problems. But really, that's not what it is. It's one long story of God helping people who cannot help themselves. Okay, this is, I like how this guy said it. He said, the Bible is one long story of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue, our sin with his salvation, our failure with his forgiveness, our guilt with his grace, our badness with his goodness. That's what the Bible is. That's what it does. It reveals, I'm a lot weaker than I think I am, and Jesus is so much stronger as a Savior than I thought that he was. Now the question is, well, how does this happen? How does God accomplish this in your life? It's going to look differently for all of us, but one of the themes all throughout the Bible is that the place where God teaches you this, the place where God meets you, is called the wilderness. You see this all throughout the Bible. You see with Israel, they get rescued from slavery, okay? And they're going to get taken into the promised land. Well, why doesn't God just take them straight to the promised land? Why doesn't he do that? No, instead he makes them go through 40 years in the wilderness because he's teaching them something, all right? Moses, he has to experience the wilderness. Jacob wrestles with God in the wilderness, You go through tons of people. They're in the wilderness. God meets people in the wilderness. So what is the wilderness? Well, the wilderness is a place where there are no uh, no resources. You don't have any resources. And so some of you know, love the TV show Survivor. That's the whole premise of the game is they take away all of your resources. You have nothing but the clothes on your back and they throw you in there and you've got to figure it out. And so what happens? You learn a lot about yourself in those situations, don't you? And so what happens in the wilderness is you realize that you actually can't make it without God's intervention. And that's important because the way a lot of us live where we are in Dallas is we live like God is an add-on to our life. Like we're doing all this other stuff and God's that thing we just kind of add on top when we have time. But in the wilderness, God's not an add-on. God becomes everything to you because you don't have anything else. And so oftentimes what happens in the wilderness is someone that might believe in God, they might believe in Christianity, but their real source of hope, the real well that they're going to to satisfy their thirst, the real bread that they're going to to satisfy their hunger, the real source of hope, the real thing that they are living for that makes them feel worthwhile, um, their real savior, frankly, it runs out on them and they realize that it's actually inadequate. Have you ever had this happen? I've had this happen multiple times in my life where something that I was leaning on to be my savior, that I was leaning on to make me happy, to give me love, to give me satisfaction, I realized that it wasn't going to give me what I thought it was. Okay. I just, we never do this. Can you raise your hand if you've experienced this? Like have some of us experienced this? Yeah. Just be honest. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. And so the truth is in the wilderness, we learn that every well is going to run dry except the water of God. And so you experience that in the wilderness, and that's where you meet God. Now, why do I set it up with that long setup? It's because today, well, that's where we're going to find David, is David's going to be in the wilderness. While we're walking through his life, he is going to spend 10 years in the wilderness, which is crazy. So if you remember, if you haven't been here, you need a reminder, Saul was originally anointed king by God, and God gave him two jobs. It was really easy. He said, you're going to honor me 
and then you're going to protect and serve my people. That's it. It's really that simple. But when it became inconvenient for Saul to honor God, he won't do it. And so he becomes selfish with power and therefore dangerous. And so God strips him of the kingdom from Saul and he anoints David. And you would think, man, that's awesome. Like David kills Goliath. He's all popular. Remember the girls are singing a song about him, which sounds really fun. And like everything's going great. But then all of a sudden, David gets launched into the wilderness. Saul is chasing him because he's dangerously jealous of him. And he tries to kill him multiple times. And so David has to spend a decade of his life in the wilderness from running from this crazed king who's trying to kill him. All right, so God uses the wilderness for David to form a king's character. And so if you're one of those people, you need to track with it, you need to know the points and all that stuff. Okay, this is where we're going today. It's really simple. It's not going to take that long. This is where we're going. We're going to look at three key scenes of David in the wilderness. We cannot hit everything. That would take way too long, so you should go read it. We're just going to summarize three main scenes. And then at the end, if you're like, I don't know where this is going. This is all over the place. Don't worry. At the end, I'm going to give you four things that we can learn from the wilderness. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you fall asleep, that's fine. But at the end, come back because it's going to very much relate to high school. It's going to be great. All right, so here we go. David in the wilderness. Here's the three key scenes. Let's look at what happens. It starts in 1 Samuel 22. And what we're going to see is we actually start with Saul. And we're going to start with seeing how selfish Saul is at this place called Nob. Okay, because when insecure people get power, they make it all about themselves. And that's what makes them dangerous. Because they exploit people and they use people instead of serve people. And so meanwhile, while Saul is going crazy, David is getting perspective in the cave. Remember how he was in the cave a few weeks ago? And so God is giving him perspective that he's saying, hey, I'm the king of kings. I love you. You don't have to worry about all this. I'm going to take care of you. So while David's getting perspective, Saul is getting paranoid. That's because a lack of perspective leads to paranoia. And so Saul does not have perspective from God. And so he's living with paranoia. And that's how a lot of us live. And so this is what happens. Check this out. This is kind of crazy. So Saul heard David was discovered. He's like, oh, we can find him. And so he's sitting under this tree. He's got a spear in his hand. He's like ready to kill David wherever, whenever he sees them. And he says to his servants, he's going to start to whine. Oh, poor Saul. He's going to start to cry and whine and complain. So here it is. He says, oh, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Okay, here he goes. Watch this. That all of you have conspired against me. Look at him. He's, all, he's sad. He's complaining. No one discloses to me where my, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Did you just feel the pity party here? Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. He says it again. To lie in wait as at this day. Then answer Doeg, the Edomite. Okay, Doeg's bad. We're going to talk about him. Stood by the servant and says, I saw the son of Jesse. I saw David. I know where he is. He came to Nob, to Hamilalek, the son of Ahetub. These are crazy names. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So what's happened? What's happening here? Saul has a spear in his hand and he's whining and he's complaining because when you make your life all about you, when things don't work out how you want them to, that's what you do. You complain. And so look who he focuses on. I enunciated it. What word does he say over and over again? Me. He's like, oh, why, why are you doing this to me? To me, he's complaining. Okay. And so whining is anti-worship. 
That's what we learn. Whining is anti-worship. When we whine, what we're basically saying is that God is not doing a good job. Like, I don't think God's doing a really good job being the king of everything. And so I'm going to whine and complain. Now, is anything Saul's saying really true? Like, are people actually conspiring against him and all that? No, none of that's true. But I have this written in my Bible right by this story. Jealousy distorts your vision. And so when you are jealous of someone else, when you compare yourself to someone else, it distorts your vision. You don't see things clearly. And so it causes you to do crazy things. And so one of the signs of insecure people, and we see this with Saul, is complaining and jealousy. Insecure people complain a lot, and insecure people are jealous of others. They compare themselves with other people. And so can the same thing happen in high school? Absolutely. When we go into school, in our high schools, the natural inclination is to compare ourselves with other people. It is to be jealous of people who have something we don't have or who look a way that we don't look or who, who are successful at something that we want to be successful at. And so what we often do is we try to attack them. We gossip about them. We try to tear them down. This is such a common thing because when I'm not secure in the Lord, I'm insecure and therefore I got to tear down the people around me. And so Doag knows this. Doag knows this. Doeg's like, ah, Saul's insecure, so I'm going to try to exploit his insecurity. I'm going to try to set him off right now and try to make him think, hey, all the things you're suspicious about, they're actually true because he's trying to jockey himself for position. He's basically telling Saul, you're right, Saul. Go do whatever you want. He's validating Saul's selfishness. And so another sign of insecure people that we see in Saul is surrounding yourself with yes men who justified you doing whatever you want to do. And so this can be the same thing in high school. It's like, do I just surround myself with friends that are just going to validate me living however I want to live? Or do I surround myself with people that actually say hard things to me that maybe I don't want to hear? But what an insecure person does, we see this with Saul, is like, now I'm just going to surround myself with people that just say yes, like you do whatever you want. Okay, now, verse 16 to 19, Saul does whatever he wants. He acts on his suspicions. He goes to the place where they're telling him to go to, where they, they think that David was, and this is what happens. Saul the king, he goes to Himelech, and he says, you shall surely die. A little bit of an overreaction. Okay, want all you to die in your father's house. The king said to the guard, says, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David, that they know, knew that he fled. They didn't disclose it to me. Okay, so he's freaking out. He wants to kill people. But the servants of the king, look at this, they wouldn't do it. They would not kill the priest. They weren't willing to do that. But who do you think will do it? Oh, Doeg, of course he will. So the king said to Doeg, you turn and you strike him. And so this is one of the bloodiest scenes in the Bible. This is R-rated, all right? Doeg, the Edomite, he turned and he struck down the priest. He killed on that day 85 people who served the Lord, just struck him down. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. This is an absolute bloodbath right here. So this is Saul at his worst, saying, I want you to just strike down and slaughter everybody that I think might be helping David. That's how crazy he's gotten. And so what you see here is that power amplifies a person's character flaws. Like if you have character flaws and you get put into power, it is going to magnify that. And it's not just going to affect you, it's going to affect 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. And we see this all the time. Like, have you ever seen a selfish or insecure person be placed in a position of power? Okay, this is what it can look like. 
And so why is this all here? This is here in this scene because it's setting up this contrast. It's like, hey, this is Saul. He's deteriorating into selfishness, but we're going to look at David now. And so God is showing us he's accomplishing something in the wilderness in David. He's trying to build a certain kind of king. So meanwhile, still in scene one, this is what David's doing. We saw the selfishness of Saul. Now we're going to see the selflessness of David at this place called Keilah. And so what happens is here is that there's the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they're robbing it. They're threatening these people that can't really do anything about it. And David sees it. He's like, well, should I do something? He asked God. And so the Lord said to him, go and attack them. I want you to go save them. I want you to sacrifice yourself to save and serve someone else. But David's men are like, no, no, no. Like Saul's trying to kill us. We can't go save someone else. Like we got to protect ourselves right here. We're afraid. And David asked God again. He's like, okay, let me go check with God again. It's an advantage he has. And God says, no, go down. I want you to kill them. I want you to serve this group that can't do anything about it. And so he does. And he ends up saving them. And so what David realizes is that what real kingly character, unlike Saul, it's not selfish. It's actually serving people who are in need, even when it's inconvenient for you. And so what we learn here is that inconvenient obedience is always better than convenient disobedience. Inconvenient obedience is always better than convenient disobedience. And so it'd be so much more convenient for David to be like, yeah, I'm not going to help them. But he knows that I got to follow what God tells me to do, even when it's convenient, inconvenient for him. And then in verse 15 to 17, he's scared because he's realizing, man, I just saved them. Everyone's now turning against me. Saul's still trying to get me. And so he has a friend here in verses 15 through 17. He saw that Saul had come to seek his life. So David's in this wilderness. And then Jonathan, remember him, Saul's son, he rose and he went to David and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear the hand of Saul. My father will not find you. You will be king over Israel. I'll be next to you. Saul, my father also knows this. And so we see this. Jonathan's a good friend for him. He strengthens him in God. So this isn't some weird codependent relationship where it's like, oh, David, I'll help you. I'm Jonathan. I'm your savior. Let me help you here. It's not what it is here. Is that David does not need more Jonathans. Okay. You don't either. What David needed and what we need is a Jonathan who strengthens us in God. That's what a good friend does. Good friend doesn't make it about them. A good friend points you to finding strength in God. And so the question is like, do you have those people? Do you have those people in your life? So this is the contrast we see in this first scene right here. We see that Saul lacks knowledge, but David receives knowledge from God. Saul serves himself and he uses people, but David sacrifices himself to serve people. Saul surrounds himself with yes men, but David surrounds himself with loving truth tellers. And so you see what God's doing in David. He's creating the kind of king. Now here's the second scene. We're going to blow through these last two quickly. I'm going to tell you what it has to do with this. This scene is crazy. This scene is like, it's got some bathroom humor and I'm not going to lie to you. Okay, so here we go. So David, he's running from Saul. He's in the wilderness and he hides in a cave. And then all of a sudden he hears this familiar voice. He's like, oh, that's Saul. And so Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. He's going to the bathroom. And that, that verb there, that phrase in the, in the Hebrew, it literally means to cover your feet because that's what you do when you drop your pants and you go to the bathroom. And so that's what's happening with Saul. He's dropping the pants. He's got to use the bathroom. There's some rumblings, I guess. And he's in the cave. And so could you possibly be more vulnerable 
than when the pants are down and you're, let's just say, in that moment. You know what I'm saying? No. And so David happens to be there. What an amazing opportunity. He's like, this dude that's trying to kill me has his pants around his ankles and he's going to the bathroom. And so his men tell him, they're like, this like, God's giving him to you. Go kill him. This is amazing. Like he's right into your hands. David happens to be there. Like the irony, unbelievable. And so what David does here, he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, which I had to think would be like a very awkward moment. All right. Pretty, it'd smell bad and it'd be, it would be weird. But he cuts it. It's like, why does he do it? Because the robe was a symbol of authority. So it's like David's saying, hey, this is being cut off from you and it's being given to me. But when he does that, God strikes his heart. He feels really bad about it because he cut off the corner of his robe. So he says to his people, he says, hey, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. That's how he's talking about Saul, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not let them attack Saul. Think about how crazy that is. The man that's trying to kill him is given to him right there, and he could kill him, and he doesn't do it. He actually feels bad that he cut off part of his robe. And so what do we, what do, we do with this? One, we see God is forming in David somebody that, is, that can even love his enemies, he can even love his enemies. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But what we also see is that God not only cares about the end product, he cares about the process. So it's not only about David being getting to that final destination of king. No, it's about how he gets there. And so one of the things I told our team last week is we're in the middle of Florida trip stuff, and it's crazy. We get crazy calls all the time from people and, you know, make sure I get signed up and all this stuff. And that's great calls. We love you. But we get some crazy ones, like really crazy stuff. And I told the team, I say, hey, how we treat people when we prep for the trip is almost as important as the trip itself. If we just get to the trip, and it's an awesome Florida trip, but the way we treated people in the process isn't loving, then that's a failure. And so the way we handle the process of loving people throughout that is just as important as the trip itself. And so the same thing's true in your life. And sometimes we might go, oh man, maybe God's allowing me a shortcut right here. Like I know this person, they don't really love the Lord, but we really click, like maybe we should, we should date, okay? And again, God cares about the process, not just the end result. And so we sometimes, we try to figure out, like, is this God's plan? Is this God's plan? Sometimes we don't know, but what we do know is what he has said in his word. And David's like, you know what? I'm gonna follow that even when the things around me don't make sense. And so David actually in this moment forgives Saul. And that takes us to the third scene, okay? David hears about this guy named Nabal, who's having a feast. And you remember, David's in the wilderness. David's starving. And so he sends people. He's like, hey, go ask this dude that's having a feast if I can have some food because I'm hungry. We're in the wilderness here. And then watch what happens. This gets crazy too, all right? David's young men came. They said this to Nabal, the, the name of David, and then they waited. They want food. They're hungry. Nabal answered David's servants. Like, who is David? You know who David is. He killed Goliath, okay? He's just being arrogant. Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed and shall I give it to men who come from I don't know where? He's like, I'm not going to share my stuff with David. I'm not doing that. And so David's young men turned away. They came back and then watch what David does. Look at his reaction. Like, we won't give him food? It's like, fine. Every man strap on a sword. So they strap on their sword. About 400 men went up after David. Okay, that's a lot. He's, he's mad, all right? And then it keeps going here. No, it doesn't keep going here. And so he's furious. He's furious because of Nabal using his selfishness 
Um, he's using his power and resources to be selfish. And so David freaks out. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this because I saw this happen yesterday. Is How many of you are driving right now? Let's just be honest, have an honest conversation. How many of you, you would admit it, you're an angry driver? Like you are. Yeah, go ahead, just put them up there. That's fine. And um, I have my moments from time to time. And uh, how many of you, you, you don't drive, but you would say mom or dad, like they freak out on the road. You know what I'm talking about? Just raise the hand, be honest. Yeah, okay, you're more afraid to out your parents than yourself. That's kind of cool. Uh, but anyway, so there's what I like to call on the road. There's business honks, and then there's angry honks. So business honk is what happened to me yesterday is the light's green. I've given the guy a few seconds of, of, of charity, you know, and they're not going. And they're, they're on their phone. It's very obvious. And I'm not mad. I'm in a good mood, you know. I just spent $233 on AirPods. It's fine, though. And so I give a business honk, and that's like a, huh, you know, just like, just go, please. I love you, but it's green. I'm trying to serve the society here and just keep things going. And then there's the angry honk, you know what I'm saying, which happens sometimes where you're like, this is not just business. This is personal. This guy's an idiot. This is like a bad person, and I am, I am I'm mad at them. And so that honk's more of like a, ah, you know what I mean? Like, you hold it, and when you hit the thing, you don't just, like, honk. Like, you, like, get that hand in there and, like, jam it. You know what I'm talking about? That's an angry honk. This is an angry honk from David. This isn't a business, like, oh, I need to go teach him how to serve people. No, this is, like, a, I'm furious with this guy, and I want to kill him. And so watch this. This will blow your mind. This is in the Bible. This is verse 22 in the ESV. We're going to read in the ESV. This won't blow your mind yet. So this is David talking. He says, God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male... So he's like, I'm killing every single person. I'm so mad. This is the uh, King James. Now, this, is, this reflects the original Hebrew a little bit more. This is literally what David says in the Hebrew. Brace yourselves, okay? May God do this to any of David, if I leave all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. That's what it says. What? What's he saying? Okay, what? that's crazy. Like, that's literally what he says in the Bible. Like, that's actually what David says. Okay, that's a curse formula in the Bible. Okay, those who pisseth against the wall, paint against the wall. He's talking about the men, because sometimes men do that, okay? And so it's basically a curse formula, and it's showing that David has lost his mind. Like, he's so angry that he's in danger of actually looking like Saul. So I don't know if you know someone like this, that they've got the short fuse, where you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to kill someone, and I don't know why. That's David. And so how does this resolve? I'm going to sum this up for you and then give you four things. This courageous woman named Abigail, you see it in verses in 20 and 28. She like talks David off the edge. She comes in with humility and gentleness. And she basically tells him, she's like, hey, you've seen God take care of you when you were with the sheep. You've seen God take care of you when you're with Goliath. God is going to take care of you now. You don't have to freak out. She's reminding David of what God did for him in the past. God's taken care of you in the past. Therefore, you can trust him to work his will, his way right now. And so why do we spend all this time on these three scenes? What do they have in common? It's really simple, is that in each of these three scenes, we see that God sends David encouragement when he needs it the most, but David has the humility to listen to it. That's what we see over and over again. The other thing we see is that God uses the wilderness to form kingly character in David. That as you see the stories continue, you will see David trusting God and serving people. And when he struggles with sin, there's someone there to help him. 
and he turns to them and he listens to them. And so I don't know what your wilderness is, but I do know that God is working in the wilderness. He's accomplishing something in the wilderness. So let me quickly give you four lessons that God teaches us in the wilderness. The first one is this, and I think I have these all up here. God teaches us when we're in the wilderness, he teaches us to rest in his sovereignty. And so when David could kill Saul, he could take matters into his own hands. He says, no, I'm going to trust that God's in control and he is going to do things in his timing. And so I've told you in my office, you can go see it after, I have a thing in there I wrote and it says it always works out. And then it has a ton of scripture under it to remind me that when things are crazy around me, I don't have to worry. I don't have to freak out because God's in control. God is working out his purposes. And so in the wilderness, God teaches you, you're not in control, but he is in control and you can rest in that. Okay. I sleep well because I know that at the end of the day, a lot of times if there's something stressing me out, I put it into God's hands and I go to bed and I don't freak out about it because God's in control and he's good and he loves you. And you learn that in the wilderness. The second one is this, in the wilderness, God gives you compassion for other people. He shapes you to serve and forgive other people. So when I'm prideful and I'm like, I'm a pretty good guy, God will often take me to the wilderness. He'll show me my own sin and weakness, and it gives me compassion for others. A lot of times when I've gone through a really hard season, I will then meet somebody later that's going through something similar, and I have so much more compassion for them than I would have. I had a family situation come up a few years ago where someone in my family went through a really tough depression season. I never knew how dark depression was until I saw this happen on the inside. And now I have so much compassion for people that go through depression because I've seen it and I've experienced it in my family. And so with David, you see him in the wilderness. He could kill Saul and he doesn't. Instead, he forgives him. That's what God wants in a king. And we have the ultimate king in Jesus. The ultimate, to me, the ultimate expression of Christ-likeness is being able to love your enemies. And it's impossible. If you've had someone try to betray you or do something bad to you, I definitely have. It is impossible. Like I cannot make myself love and forgive them. But Jesus loved and forgave me when I was his enemy on the cross. And when I see that, when I soak in that, maybe just maybe over time, it forms me to be able to love and forgive somebody that's hurt me. That's what makes a good leader. A good leader is not this powerful, strong ah, person. No, it's somebody that loves and serves other people, even their enemies. See, that goes against our culture. Our culture tells you it's about building your resume, building your image. And God's like, no, what a leader does is he, he gives himself up to serve other people, even as enemies. God teaches you that in the wilderness. The third is he teaches you to trust his word when you can't see. I had a conversation with someone who doesn't go to church here. He's a senior at Highland Park. And he was asking, I ran into him yesterday, and he was asking me, he was basically saying, um, hey, what advice do you have when you're tempted to seek pleasure in the moment, but you know that this thing you want to do is actually going to cause problems later, but it's so hard to not do it. Okay, do, you re- do you relate to that at all? And so in the wilderness, you learn that as someone said, expedience is not better than obedience. Okay, trying to take a shortcut and get something fast is not better than obedience. And so when you look around and you see someone not following God, but it looks like they're thriving, it looks like everything's going well, Okay, what you learn in the wilderness is that God's commands for you come from the fact that he loves you and that he's good. And so he uses the wilderness to create in you a heart that will obey him just because you trust his loving character, even if it costs you something in the short term. And I want to end with this, and then SP can come up and sing the last one. As in the wilderness, God gets the gospel deep into you. 
He gets the gospel deep into you. Okay, David's name, if you translate it, it means beloved. That's what it means. And in Psalm 52.8, when Doeg, he knows about Doeg, what David says in Psalm 52.8, he says, hey, I'm like a green olive tree. I'm thriving in the house of God because I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. So in the wilderness, he's thriving, not because everything around him is, but because he knows God's steadfast love and he's learning that he is beloved by God. That's his primary identity. And so there's a golf documentary that came out. Some of you may be watching it and it, it follows pro golfers on the PGA. And um, I watched one last night and it follows Scotty. And then on the same episode, it follows a guy named Brooks Kepka. And you may know who he is. You may have seen this episode. And in this episode in particular, um, you, you honestly see him self-destruct is he starts to struggle and they go behind the scenes and they talk to him and he's admitting that his whole identity is found in how successful he is at golf. And he's, it's killing him. I mean, you just see him. He can't focus on his fiance. He can't do anything. And he's angry. And you see him searching because the well has run dry. And he's realizing this thing that I was depending on for my identity is not giving it to me. And so in the wilderness, what God shows you is that he knows you the best. He also loves you the most. And you learn that, yeah, you're, you're worse than you thought you were, but God's love for you is bigger than you thought that it was. And so at the end of the day, you learn the freedom of what it means to live by grace and not by performance, okay? That's what happens in the wilderness. I'm gonna have SP come on up here. That was a long one, but we had to cover like six chapters. And then we're gonna sing one more song. And I just wanna invite you to think about that. What is your wilderness? What are the things in your life God is using to show you who you are, that you need him more than you think you do, and what it looks like to find your identity more and more in him. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we get to come here together and we get to be reminded and encouraged by this story of David in the wilderness, that you meet us in the wilderness. And the biggest thing you do, Lord, is you show us that our identity is found in you. It's not found in what people think about us. It's not found in whether or not we have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's not found how good we are at sports. It's found in the fact that we are loved by you and you sent Jesus to the cross to prove it. I pray we would rest in that today. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.